Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. And I encourage you to find that passage that Jeff just read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. Uh, in the Red Bibles, it's page 958. Wonder what your response would be if you opened up your inbox tomorrow morning and there was an email from your former pastor, Pastor Steve, who has been your pastor for 13 years, and the subject line read, next Sunday, just stay at home. And it read something like this, dear KBC worshiper, I received some information from Pastor Dave about yesterday's morning worship service. And I realize that Pastor Dave is prone to exaggeration, but if even part of what he is saying is true, your getting together was not for the better, it was for the worst. Because what I found out is when you guys get together, you don't regard one another. Oh yeah, you do that handshake thing when, when Matt asks you to. But other than that, you really just spend time in your own little group, in your little clique with the people who are like you, who, who look like you and are in your stage of life and who you have things in common with, even who are at the same socioeconomic level that you are at and vote for the same people that you do. But you don't really have an, have an openness toward one another. You're not truly hospitable toward one another. And so I'm telling you guys, it would be just better off if next Sunday, forget about showing up at Cornerstone Christian Academy, just stay home. What would your response be? <laughs> yeah, isn't that a little harsh, Pastor Steve? I mean, okay, maybe I didn't, you know, maybe I kind of talked to the same people all the time, but is it really that big of a deal? I mean, I like to be with people who are like me, and doesn't everybody like that? Isn't that just human nature? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, that is a big deal. It was a big deal at the church in Corinth. And so Paul writes in the text that we heard just a little while ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, he writes to the church to, to severely criticize them and correct them. In fact, if it's interesting, did you notice that uh, Paul begins with, well, in the first place, and he never gets to the second place or the third place? He just says at the end of that passage, you know, about the other stuff, we'll talk about that uh, when I get there. Kids, have you, ever, your parents ever been that mad at you? That's like, I, I got five things to tell you, and then they never get past the first one. That's kind of how the apostle Paul was with the church at Corinth, in regard to their gathering together. This is all in a section in chapters 11 through 14 about disunity and disorder in worship. And Paul says, this is a really big deal. When you get together to worship, if you are not seeking to be hospitable, if you're not seeking to, to demonstrate the real connectedness to your brothers and sisters, you have missed the whole point of getting together. And you might as well not even get together. Well, this morning, we need to hear from God's word about our gathering together to make sure that we're not guilty of the same kind of dismissing of one another. And so let's, let's receive this word from God's word. 
The Apostle Paul is much like the Old Testament prophets. It's a prophetic word. So many times the Old Testament prophets would, would uh, speak on God's behalf to God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel, and say, hey, your worship, God doesn't even, God is not even receiving it. He doesn't even want to, he doesn't even want to see your sacrifices because your hearts are so far from me. In Malachi, for instance, it sounds a lot like what the Apostle Paul writes. The prophet Malachi writes to God's people uh, saying, listen, you are despising the Lord's table. He's talking about the sacrifices, but it's interesting he uses the term the Lord's table. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors of the temple. I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept your offerings. The table of the Lord is polluted. Doesn't the Apostle Paul sound a lot like that as he's writing to the Corinthians in our passage this morning? And so this is serious. Our relationships with one another, how we treat one another, how we care for one another or fail to care for one another in the body of Christ as we gather really matters. Now it's interesting, as an aside, Paul says this is really serious, this is really a big deal, and yet it's not absolutely surprising. In fact, God has a redeeming purpose for this. Notice how Paul said, you know what, to some extent, this whole thing with divisions and cliques, it needs to happen in order to reveal or make visible who are authentically part of the church. And so I want us to hear this as a word of, of critique and correction this morning, but also as a word of hope. God has redeeming purposes even in the problems that a church might face. Even in the relational issues that come up in church life, God has redeeming purposes for that, purifying purposes for his church. Back into the text. What exactly was the problem here in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Corinth? Well, it had to do with when they came together. Five times the Apostle Paul says, when you come together. In verse 18, he says, when you come together as a church, or your translation might say as the church. In the original, there's not even an article like a or the there. It's when you come together as church, which I think is pretty interesting and I think communicates something in and of itself, namely that when we, when the, when we gather as a local body of Christ, we are the church. We are a local expression of the church. And we're never more the church than when we're gathered to worship Christ as the church. Paul says, when you guys gather as church, we've got an issue going on. Now, we need to understand that their gatherings as church look different than ours. Many of the same elements. They were praying together. They were singing together. They were hearing teaching together. And they were taking of the Lord's Supper together, the, the bread and the cup. And this had to do with how that was celebrated. And how they celebrated that is they didn't have a building to go to like this, but they gathered in a home. And probably on a Sunday evening. Now, they couldn't do it during the day because people worked seven days a week. And some of the church, those who were better off, could... Am I okay? I just see people working on stuff. You're hearing me okay? Okay. Um, when they gathered, they gathered in a home in the evening. And there were some people who could be there early and they would bring a meal and they would bring food and they'd eat that. That was called the, the agape or the love feast together. But there were a lot of people uh, in the church who were slaves or, or freedmen, just 
living at basic subsistence level, and they wouldn't be able to come till they got done with work. And what's happening, as we can see in the text, is they're eating this meal together, and those who have the means and are honestly bringing the really good stuff, you know how that goes in a church potluck situation, right? <laughs> There's always those folks who are bringing the good stuff, and you want to get there early for that, right? Well, they were devouring it. And they were probably beginning the Lord's Supper like Jesus did at, at the Last Supper with the bread at the beginning of the supper and the cup at the end. But by the time some people got off work and actually got there, some people had totally eaten all the good food and so there was nothing left, especially for those who didn't even have the means to bring any food or, or to share. And there were some people who, who not only did they get their, their the, the community cup representing Jesus' blood in the communion, but they'd had a few glasses on their own to the point that they were actually drunk. And Paul's assessment and accusation of this situation is he, he's not even, clearly he understands drunkenness is a sin and not God's will, but he's not nearly as concerned about that right here as about how they're treating one another. Notice what he says uh, in verse 22. What do you guys do you despise the church? Obviously, he's not talking about a church building there. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly the haves despising those who don't have much, the have-nots. Do you despise your brothers and sisters? Do you, do you humiliate those who have less? It sounds a lot like James chapter 2 where he says, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring or fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who has fine clothes and say, Oh, sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, Stand over there or just sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And Paul says here in our text, you know, when you gather to worship, the point of gathering to worship, one of the points is that, that that is a space where you can demonstrate your love for one another, and yet you're despising one another. It's a place where, where you can humble yourself to serve your brother or sister, and yet you are humiliating them. Remember what Paul said in chapter 8, verse 11. This is when he was correcting those who felt strong in their faith. They could go to the temples and eat the meals there. Uh, but it was a problem for those who were weaker. And Paul said, you, excuse me, Paul said in chapter 8, verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, namely the brother or the sister for whom Christ died. Your brother, your sister, for whom Christ died, Paul says to the Corinthians. You're despising them, that you're humiliating them, particularly you folks who, who have stuff. You're humiliating those in your assembly who have much less. And so the apostle's analysis is, I don't know what you think you're doing when you gather and you take the bread and the cup, but you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. 
Whatever supper, whatever meal, whatever celebration it is, it is not the Lord's Supper. Because you're missing the whole point of of Jesus who became poor for our sakes. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Beautiful exchange there, isn't there? We get the riches of salvation. We get the riches of eternity through Jesus who became poor. He took on flesh to become like us. And I think there's something there about Jesus being being in physically impoverished circumstances as well. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, God demonstrates a love and a particular care for the poor, for the sojourner, for the refugee, And he says to his people, you're to care for people like that because because that is who you were. That's what he said to the Israelites. And when you see that picture, believer, you're to understand that that's a picture of who you are spiritually without Christ. We are all spiritually impoverished. And those in poor circumstances remind us of our need and the reason that believers are to care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the homeless and the refugee. It's because in doing so, we are are demonstrating Christ's likeness and Christ who cared for us when we were poor, when we were spiritually impoverished. Paul says, that's what Jesus was all about. That's what the Lord was all about. In Corinthians, when you guys get together, you are doing just the opposite. It would be better if you didn't even gather on Sunday for worship. So here is the big idea for the whole passage. This is the theme that we're going to walk through together. Namely, that the way we commemorate Jesus' death, as we gather for worship, and particularly as we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper together, the way we commemorate Jesus' death must visibly communicate the unity that Jesus died to create. Jesus gave up himself in order to create a people unified by one thing, by him, their faith in him. All their other differences, whatever those may be, fade, and our our greatest unity is in Jesus Christ. And so the way we worship, and in particular, the way we commemorate Jesus' death ought to reflect the unity he died to create. And it is the visible nature of the ordinance of communion, the fact that we're taking physical elements in our hands. It's unlike anything else that we do when we gather for worship. There is the the tangible reality of of the elements, the bread and the cup, representing Jesus' body, the body that he came to sacrifice on our behalf. And there is the tangible reality of God's people gathered in our physical bodies, sitting next to one another in their physical bodies. The local church, the body of Christ. And so Kishwaukee Bible Church, our observance of the Lord's Supper matters. 
So let's open our hearts this morning to receive these instructions from God's word as we move toward the table together. Three things, three basic questions I want to answer that I think the text answers for us in regard to the Lord's Supper. What is it? Why do we observe it? And how ought we to observe the Lord's Supper? What is it? Why do we observe it? How ought we to observe the Lord's Supper together? First of all, what is the Lord's Supper? Look at, again at verses 23 through 25. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is the Lord's Supper? Well, first of all, it's all about the Lord. It's all about Jesus. Paul says, I received uh, this tradition that I'm now passing on to you. Now, the Apostle Paul received a lot of direct communication from Jesus. Uh, his conversion, Jesus spoke directly to him. He received his gospel and his commissioning directly from Jesus. But I don't think that's what he's saying here, that Jesus just gave this to him. He's saying, I stand in a long line that goes all the way back to the Last Supper when Jesus instituted this in the upper room less than 24 hours before his death on the cross. And it has been passed down to believers in every generation, in every circumstance. And we stand in that line with the church universal throughout the ages when we come to this table. This is, the, this is the tradition, this is the, the, the ordinance, this is the sacred ordinance, the sacrament that Jesus passed down to us to remember him. Remember him, Jesus says, do this in remembering me. In particular, he says, my death. And when Jesus says that, when Paul says that about Jesus' death, he's not talking about just remembering the occasion of Jesus' death or, or even the historical fact of Jesus' death, which is, of course, true. But this isn't just the facts, ma'am. This is all that Jesus accomplished through his death, that he laid down his life to accomplish a mission. Again, Paul, in these words that we often call the words of the institution, instituting the Lord's Supper, often read or recited or referred to at a communion service like this. Paul begins them, interestingly enough, by saying that Jesus gave us this on the night when he was betrayed. And we remember that last supper where he was gathered with his disciples. And we remember that he was betrayed. That he didn't die because he was guilty. He was dying for the guilt of others. And when he instituted this supper, it was less than 24 hours before he would hang on the cross to pay for our sins. It was when they gathered in that upper room, you remember they were, they were observing the Passover meal together. As these Jewish men had done throughout their lives, year after year after year. 
And they understood what it meant. It, was, it reminded them of, of the Passover, of the exodus of God's people uh, being delivered out of Egypt and how the, the, the Passover lamb would have to be slain and how the blood would have to be put around the door and that the, they would be saved by the blood of the lamb. And Jesus gave that meal new meaning. He fulfilled it. At the beginning, when they would have normally taken bread in that meal, Jesus took bread, and he said, this is my body. Now, it's very unlikely that the disciples would have thought that this was, this was physically, literally Jesus' body, the bread. For one thing, Jesus was using his body to break the bread. He was standing there so they could see that. That's a very Hebrew way of talking about things. Paul earlier said uh, in 1 Corinthians that Jesus was the rock that was there at the beginning of the, ex or beginning of the wanderings of God's people through the desert. And he was the rock at the end. He's not literally saying Jesus was a rock. But Jesus says, this, this bread is my body, which is for you, for you. Jesus' death just a few hours away. And we're reminding that Jesus died in our place. He was the substitute. He died for us. A death that would pay for our sins. The death that we deserved. And then at the end of the meal, when they, when they took the cup that they would normally take as part of that meal, Jesus gave it new meaning and fulfilled it by saying, this cup, he didn't just say it's my blood. He said it's the new covenant in my blood. And saying that, Jesus said that he is establishing a new and a better covenant, one that the prophets had foretold. Listen to how the writer of the Hebrews beautifully sums this up and, and it helps us to understand Jesus' fulfillment, not, over, not only of the Passover, but also as the, the inaugurator of a new and better covenant. Hebrews 8, chapter, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant, the covenant that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. The, the law, which was good. Paul says the law is good. The problem with the law wasn't the law. The problem was with us and our inability to keep the law. And so God had to make a new covenant, a more excellent one that Jesus mediates. It's better since it's enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion for a second. Again, the fault, the writer to the Hebrews says, the fault was not with them, it was with us. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31, beautiful new covenant passage from the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, Jeremiah writes, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
That's been God's covenant promise since the very beginning, since the Garden of Eden, when everything went wrong, that I will be their God and they will be my people. And Jesus says, in my blood, which will flow in just a few hours from the cross, a new covenant will be established. One where God's law will be written on the hearts of all his people. And so what is the Lord's Supper? It is Jesus' reminder for us of himself in 3D. This is Jesus' reminder of himself for us that we can touch and we can taste and we can handle. Notice that in these words of institution, Jesus and Paul, quoting Jesus, doesn't say, hey, put some bread out, put some bread out, put, put the cup out, and I want you to look at it. And I want you to remember that my body was broken and my blood was shed. When you see those things, remember that. No, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Take it in your hand. Don't just look at it. Take it. Taste it. Touch it. Let the reality of these elements remind you of the reality of me and my sacrifice on your behalf. It is real. Sometimes uh, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, are referred to as signs and seals. Signs, they point to something. They point to the, the, the death of Jesus. But they're also seals because when we, we take them in, our hearts are sealed in an understanding and in faith that this is real. God's grace and God's work in my life is as real as the things I touch. It's as real as the water that we baptize people in. And so remember. And remembering assumes forgetfulness, does it not? Which brings us to why we observe the Lord's Supper. We observe the Lord's Supper because in partaking of it, we're saying something. We're making a proclamation, uh, an announcement. When the Lord's Supper is observed, a sermon is preached, and it's not by me or any other preacher. It is a message of Jesus' death. He says in verse 26, when you celebrate this, you Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the message. Again, not just the facts about Jesus' death, but all that it accomplished. The full gospel story that we were created in God's image to glorify him. But we have gone far astray from that and lived as glorifying ourselves. But God sent Jesus the Lamb of God, to be the sacrifice whose sins could take away the sin of the world. And all who trust in him have their sins forgiven and they have eternal life and they look forward to Jesus' return. That's the gospel. And when we partake of these elements, we are preaching that gospel. We're, we're declaring that through our, through our actions. We actually enter into the drama of redemption. We're not outside. We're not spectators. We're not, we're not sitting up in the bleachers. When we take these elements, we are reminded that we have become, by God's grace, part of the drama of redemption. 
Not that we've redeemed ourselves, but that Jesus has redeemed us. And so who needs to hear this announcement, this message when we observe communion? To whom are we preaching? Three, three audiences. And the first audience is my heart. The first audience is your own heart. We need this to sustain us, to be reminded of God's grace as we go through our journey in this world. But also we are, we are reminding and announcing and proclaiming the gospel to one another. So the second audience is one another. It's our brothers and sisters in Christ gathered with us. And then the final audience is anyone who does not yet know Christ, who might be gathered with us. In chapter 14, talking about worship, Paul is going to talk about how if there is an unbeliever, someone who does not yet embrace Christ by faith, in our midst, there ought to be indications from our worship together that God is here and he is real. And if you're gathered with us this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ in a saving way, my prayer is that as you hear the word and as we receive these elements this morning, there will be a reenacting of the gospel story that will help you to understand the reality of a Savior named Jesus Christ who laid down his life to pay the penalty that we deserve before a holy God so that all who trust in him could know forgiveness and eternal life. That's the message we proclaim when we partake together. So why do we observe the Lord's Supper? We observe it because an ongoing receiving of the good news of Jesus' cross, the gospel, sustains us. In an ongoing proclamation, we don't just do this uh, once a year. We do this regularly repeatedly, at least once a month, because we need to be sustained by God's grace, a reminder of all that Jesus has accomplished on an ongoing basis. Paul says, until Jesus returns, when he comes here in the flesh and returns, we won't have to remember his body and his blood because he'll, he'll be here. But right now, that pretty much describes where we are in life and where we are in the redemption story. We're, we're between Jesus' death that we remember and his coming again. And during that time, we remind ourselves in order to sustain us as we get weary in our journey, as we get weary with our own fight with sin, as we get weary of our own weaknesses and our own disappointments, Jesus reminds us of who we are in him through this observance. Gordon Fee puts it well. He says, The Lord's Supper is not simply a memorial of the Last Supper, nor of Christ's death per se. It is a constant, repeated reminder and experience of the efficacy, the effectiveness of the death of Jesus for us. God has called us not to be on the sidelines but to enter into that drama and be reminded of all that Jesus is for us and all that he has accomplished for us in his death and his resurrection because he couldn't be coming back for us again if he hadn't risen from the dead. And so how, finally, should we observe the Lord's Supper? How should we observe the Lord's Supper? Well, Paul begins telling us how not to eat and drink 
namely in an unworthy manner. Or some of your translations might say unworthily. Now, don't get tripped up here. And please don't understand, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. What God's word is not saying here is that you must be worthy to partake of communion. Because none of us, none of us is worthy. In fact, that is the test. That's the examination that he's talking about here in verse 28. The test is asking, what am I trusting in? If I am trusting in my own worthiness, if I am trusting in something that I literally bring to the table, my own accomplishments, my own good works, then Paul says you're you're guilty of the body and blood. You're liable for the body and blood of Jesus because that's the very human spirit of self-sufficiency that put Jesus to death. The attitude that says, I don't need a Savior. When coming to this table is saying, I most definitely need a Savior. And so first of all, we come resting in Jesus' finished work. Resting in all that Jesus has accomplished as the final Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The examination, that the self-exam is asking ourselves, what, where does my hope lie? May my hope be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, his righteousness. May I stand on him, the solid rock, be found in him. And friends, this is the only prerequisite for coming to the table today or any other time. The only prerequisite for taking communion The only qualification is to realize I'm not qualified. But Jesus has qualified me. He laid down his life. His broken body, his shed blood is is more than sufficient to take away the sins of the world. It's certainly more than sufficient to take away my sin. And I am trusting in that. And I'm not trusting in anything else for my security, for my righteousness, for my identity, for my meaning in this life and the next. That's that's the only qualification. Praise God. Secondly, we come recognizing the body. Verse 29, Paul talks about recognizing the body. Now, it's interesting. look Look at verse 29. Again, it's interesting sometimes to observe what isn't said. (laughs) That helps us to understand what is said. Paul says in verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, shouldn't the words and blood be there as well? Because he said eats and drinks. You would think the parallel would be body and blood. Because he says eats and drinks judgment to himself. Why does he just say the body and not the body and blood. I think there's a good hint for us if you turn a page or so back to chapter 10. There's some verses that I did not spend a lot of time on then, and I wanted to come back now to verse 10, to chapter 10, verse 16. 
chapter 10, verse 16. Paul says, because there is, I'm sorry, verse 16. Go one verse up higher, Dave. There we go. The cup of blessing that we bless. This is in communion, the cup. It's called the cup of blessing because there would have been a blessing, not so much of the cup, but of of blessing God, thanksgiving to God. It's where the word Eucharist comes from. It's a thanks, it's it's giving thanks to God for his grace. It literally means uh, good, good grace. Thanks to God for his grace. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? I just want to pause for a second there. I know that in, especially in, in evangelical and Protestant circles, we want to make sure to say, hey, now we don't understand that this is the literal body and blood of Jesus or it becomes that. We don't want to mix this up with, with misunderstandings or, or re-sacrifices of Jesus, and, and that's good. But sometimes we so emphasize what it's not, and we say, hey, this is just a memory, it's just a memorial, that we forget the, the deep work that is going on through the Holy Spirit when we gather to receive communion. Paul says this is a participation. It's a fellowship. It's reminding us of our real connection to Jesus that should have been us on the cross. But by God's grace, it wasn't, and we're now connected to all the benefits of his life-giving death and resurrection. Paul goes on in verse 17. Because there is one bread, and that word bread could easily be translated loaf, and you might have a translation where it is translated loaf. Because there is one loaf, and in their communion celebrating, they probably would have used one loaf and torn off a piece. Because there is one loaf, we who are one body, we are one body, for we all partake of the one bread or the one loaf. See, Paul isn't talking at this point as much about Jesus' body and blood as he's talking about what the one loaf represents, and that is one body of Christ gathered. And so to recognize the body is is to do exactly what the Corinthians were failing to do. It's to recognize one another. It's to receive one another. It's to care for one another. It's to love one another in our gathering to receive the elements. Recognize the body. Discern the body. Who is the body? The body is my sister. The body is my brother for whom Christ died. I look at those elements and I think this is Jesus' body and blood. He did this, not just for me, but for those who are sitting around me as we're gathered. And it's serious not to, Paul says. In their congregation, people are getting sick and dying because they're not doing that. And so therefore, finally, Paul says, wait for one another. Receive one another. How should we observe the Lord's Supper? We should do it with a receptivity toward one another. Paul isn't just giving a procedural uh, instruction here. He says, now now wait, just wait till everybody gets there before you have it. I'm sure he's saying that. But there's more in that waiting for one another than just a procedure. It is to wait on one another. 
It is to have a receptive spirit toward my brothers and sisters. It is to, it is to welcome them, especially if they're different than I am. Look at the bread today. Look at the cup today. And be reminded of your brother and sister for whom Christ died. Because the way we commemorate Jesus' death, it needs to, it needs to communicate visibly. There's so much about visibility in this passage. There needs to be a visibility about our unity in Christ when we're gathered. That's why I really like the way it's set up this morning. There's, 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 this, there's this more of a connectedness and a community. Not that we can't sit other, other ways. But anything that we can do to reflect the unity that we have in Christ. This is Jesus' remembrance. He didn't just give it to us on sheets of paper and flat words in a book. He gave us real elements, tangible things that we take into our hands and we put into our bodies to remember our connectedness to him. In the lawn uh, out in front of the DeKalb County Courthouse, there is a memorial. It's a really beautiful memorial. But every day, people drive by and don't even notice it. And every day, dozens of people walk past that memorial, don't even notice it. But if they did, if they stopped to take a look at that memorial, they would see that it is a memorial to bodies that were broken so that captives could be set free. And it's a memorial to, to blood that was shed in order to maintain the unity of a people. And it represents a war that was fought at great cost and was won. Friends, how much more so? How much more so the memorial that we have before us this morning? Through Jesus' death, we've been set free. Slaves to sin and to Satan, no more. Through Jesus' death, a war was fought and Jesus was the victor by laying down his life. And we enjoy the freedom that we have in him. We enjoy all of these benefits. And so let's come to this table this morning. There's only one requirement. And I ask the worship team to start to come up if they would right now. Friends, there's only one requirement for coming to this table. And that is that you recognize your need for Jesus. You recognize that there's nothing that you bring to the table. But you're only trusting in what Jesus has done, what the, what the very thing that these elements represent. And so if that describes you, whether you're a regular part of this church, whether this is your church home or not, if you are trusting in Jesus for salvation, by God's grace you have turned from your sin and you're looking to him, then please take the elements and partake with us today. If that doesn't describe you yet, 
it is so good that you are here and you are in the right place. And we would just ask that you would pass the elements by today, but that you would listen and that you would focus on the story that is being told of what Jesus has done for his people through this participating. And that you would turn your heart toward Jesus and trust in him. I'm going to have the servers come now and we're going to pass the bread and I'm going to ask that you hold the bread so that we can participate and partake together. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, gathered there with his disciples, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. As you eat this bread, remember that the body of Jesus was broken and believe that it was broken to make you whole. Let's partake. Well, we don't, as far as I'm aware, would you stand, by the way, if you're able? We don't, as far as I know, share one cup here at Kishwaukee, all drinking out of the same cup. So I was trying to think of a way where we could communicate our communion and our connectedness to one another. So would you do this? Would you exchange your cup with someone else to indicate our unity with one another? In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, giving it to his disciples and saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. And some of the record of it says, which is poured out for many, for many. God wants many in his kingdom. So as you take this cup, remember that the blood of Jesus was poured out for a full and complete washing clean of all your sins and all our sins. Amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth can be renewed like the eagles. Let's sing our thanksgiving to Christ. Let's bless the Lord and say thank you, Jesus, together. It's our God. He is the one who takes his enemies and makes them his friends and invites them to his table. And dear ones, that is the good news that we leave here to proclaim to our world. So as you go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit empower you to be his people this week. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H Bible dot O-R-G.